used to have a, a, a Christmas suit, but I put about 20 pounds on and I can't fit in anymore, so I had to give it away. So it was nice. I liked it. It had reindeers. It had Santa's sleigh on it. It had a nice tie, too, but I just had to... I don't know if I can afford it. <laughs> but hey, guys, I just want to say welcome to ID Clifton. I know it's a little cold and clammy today, but I hope you got your coffee, uh, not just to give you the energy, but to keep you warm. But uh, the warmth I want you to feel today is the family feel. You know, we're, we're a family here, okay? And that's what we are. We're the body of Christ. We're a family here. We love each other. And one of the things I want to share you, uh, to you from the Word of God this past week, I was in uh, my quiet time, and I've been, God's been leading me through Paul's letters, and I love it, because I learned that it's really hard to do this, but you have to read Paul, Paul's letters from the very beginning to the end, and it's so hard for us to do sometimes, because sometimes we're slow readers, but Paul has one big concept a lot of times through his letters, but as we take time and we slow down to read them, we start to understand that, and so that's what I've been doing, is trying to slow down and then also read the full concept of it, but I was sitting here this week, and I was reading Colossians, and I was in awe because God's beautiful, right? Like, he shows us his love for us all the time, and we, not, we may not think that or feel that or always experience that, but God's love is never not there all seconds of the day. And I want to share this word from you from Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That last sentence, making peace by the blood of his cross, is so beautiful for us to see because as I was reading there, I didn't capture that. Peace has now been made between us and God because of what his son did for us. And that's beautiful if you ask me, right? Like, are you guys, are you guys excited that we get to worship a living God? Oh, no, that's not good enough. I, are you guys excited that we get to worship a living God? The King of Kings, the Ruler of Rulers, the Lord of Lords. Hey, that, that fires me up. I, like, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, but like, it's amazing because when he was born, he came down to be with us, right? And in his death, he took our payment of debt and rose three days later so that we could have life with our Father in heaven. That is awesome. I hope you guys experience that today in worship. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, I thank you today, Lord, that you gave us peace, peace in our lives, even though we don't experience it all the time. Peace by the blood of your sons on the cross. And Father, I just thank you for that, that you were willing to give a piece of your son to us so that we can experience eternal life with you. You see, in this scripture, it talks about, Lord, you're showing us that he was there with you in the beginning when you created all things, and it was created by him and for him. And Lord, I just, I pray that today these hearts, these souls here, Lord God, if they've not experienced that, they've not heard that they're loved by you, that they see it through what your son did on the cross, this peace that is talking about by his blood being shed on the cross. And so, Lord, I pray that 
the spirit is so full in here and the people and in our worship team this morning and in our pastor Ricky, Lord, I pray that we leave nothing left here at the, and we just empty ourselves of everything and we be filled with your spirit. God, I pray that you speak a mighty word through Ricky that he becomes smaller and your spirit becomes bigger. That he be nothing but a microphone and a vessel for your word, God. Teach us and show us what it's like to have peace. Let us understand it, Lord. We've maybe seen a glimpse of it, Lord. Let us have the fullness of it. Father, we thank you and we praise you in your name, Jesus. Amen. Addie's a little nervous, but Addie's going to do a great job. Uh, the Bible says that from the mouth of babes, sometimes that the uh, Lord will be announced. And so I was thinking this week, I was like, okay, well, last week, I was like, okay, I need a little kid to come up here and answer some questions for me. And I was like, I could ask Titus, but that's not going to go good. And then I was like, I could ask Ellie, but she'll be all hyped up until she gets up here, and then she'll just go hide. And uh, I was thinking of uh, another, other little kids in our church, and I was like, well, Addie would do a great job. And Addie told me no at first, but then she was like, yeah, I'll do it. No. She's just a little nervous. But I'm going to ask Addie a few questions. And they're questions we always think about during Christmas. And I just want a kid's perspective because I think they have a sweeter perspective, a more, sometimes a more godly perspective than we do. And so, Addie, what is Christmas? It's Jesus' birthday. Jesus' birthday. That's super exciting, right? Uh, we read a book the other night with Ellie and Titus called Jesus' Birthday. And it's about all these animal, uh, animals in the forest preparing Jesus's birthday. So, Addie, what would you get Jesus for his birthday? Uh, I would bring him a blanket. A blanket? Mm -hmm. That's awesome, because the swaddling cloth wasn't good enough, was it? Mm -mm. No. So, he needed to keep warm, because it was cold out there. And so, uh, you would get him a blanket for his birthday. That's awesome. That's a big act of love, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Saying, here's somebody without something, I want to provide it for them. Man, that's a sweet answer, that answer that we really need to unpack. Because if you think about it, a blanket Right? It's not that flashy. It's not something that most people would even ask. Have you ever asked for a blanket for Christmas? Mm -hmm. No, right? And so most people have never asked for a blanket for Christmas unless you're above the age of 57. If you're above the age of 57, blankets are number one on your list, right? So, yeah, I'm already thinking about the blankets that I want when I'm 57. And so it's like it's already coming into perspective. And so, but a blanket, it keeps you warm, it covers you, and just so you guys know, I didn't tell Addie to ask this question, this is just the Holy Spirit, but it keeps you warm, it covers you, it uh, makes you feel all comfy, right? Like when you get in your blankets at night and you cover up and it's cold in your house, you feel just perfect, mm -hmm. right? And so thinking about Jesus being covered, being covered, just like he's going to cover our sin with his blood from his death on the cross, right? How beautiful is that? And so Addie, what's your favorite part of Christmas? Spending time with my family. Spending time with your family? It's not the presents? Mm -mm. I know your family, so I don't think that's that good of a... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so uh, that's super exciting, though. So you love spending time with your family. Mm -hmm. Titus, you like spending time with Titus? Yeah. Yeah? So what are you most excited about this year for Christmas? Do you, have you asked for anything good? I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> no. Okay. You're just excited to spend time with your family and hang out? Yeah. Have fun? Mm -hmm. Celebrate Jesus? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Addie, thank you so much. Do you want to say anything? No. You don't want to say anything? <laughs> no. Really? Mm -hmm. You don't want to tell them a little, want to tell them what grade you're in? I'm in fifth grade. Fifth grade? Mm -hmm. What school do you go to? Intermediate. Do you love Jesus? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Kelly likes your school. <laughs> so. Oh, she lives close to that school. That's exciting. You can go to her house for lunch. 
Probably better than the school lunch I eat. Do they? <laughs> yeah, it probably is. Do they let fifth graders leave school and come back later? No. Okay, I didn't think so. So, well, Addie, thank you so much. Give Addie a big round of applause. It, it's it's super exciting when we get to see the perspective that kids have on things because honestly, their perspective is so straightforward. Like we 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 overcomplicate everything, right? Like, we overcomplicate everything. Kids will just tell you the truth. If you go to a kid and be like, are you hungry? They'll say yes or they'll say no. They won't be like, depends for what, right? They'll be like, yes, I'm hungry or no, I'm not hungry, right? It's not like, oh, I might be hungry. And when you ask a kid about Jesus, it's not filled with a lot of uh, cultural things or a lot of history. It's, it's filled with, this is who I have been presented with is who Christ is, and this is who I'm following. And so with kids, a lot of times their answers can be so simple and so sweet, uh, and so when we, I love the answer that Addie gave about a blanket, right? Uh, she's read the Christmas story. She knows that Jesus was born in a manger and that he was wrapped in swaddling cloth, which swaddling cloth was really a common thing back then, but that he was wrapped in that. And when she thinks of it, she's like, well, Jesus didn't have a blanket. All babies have blankets. Jesus needs a blanket, right? Her mind goes to how can I serve Jesus? Does doesn't that resonate in your heart just a little bit? This little girl, fifth grade, sees Jesus without a blanket and says, how can I serve Jesus? See, when we, when we read the Christmas story, a lot of times we think about, well, okay, that was a great story, right? Do you ever think, well, how can I serve Jesus? How, how can I do something for him? How can I care for him? See, Jesus came to care for us, so it's not a question that is often thought about. But the fact that she, a little girl, says, I want to serve him. And if I would have asked her about any baby, aside from Jesus, she probably would have been like, I'll get him a blanket if he doesn't have a blanket. I want to serve that baby. I I see a need, and I want to meet it. See, as followers of Christ, that's what our heart should be. When we see a need, we should want to meet it. We should say, that person is without warmth. How can I provide them warmth? See, Christ in heaven, when he was in heaven with God, before he had come, before he had been born of a virgin, he looked at us and saw our need and had a desire to meet our need. He knew that but without him we would be separated from his father, and that we would be destined to eternal separation from him. So he said, here's a need. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to meet it. And his, how he met that need is coming from perfection into the world, being born of a virgin so that he could meet the needs of the multitudes. Now, the story about how Jesus gets here is very interesting, and it's one that we've heard a lot. We've heard the Christmas story, how Jesus was born of a virgin, how Mary and Joseph traveled. But I want to look at some other things in that story that we might not know today. I want to look about how Jesus came when, when uh, uh, they read the scripture at the beginning of service. Blake and Marley, when they read the scripture, it said, they will name him Emmanuel. It didn't say Jesus, it said Emmanuel, right? What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us, right? God is with us. He said, I'm going to send you God to be with you. Think about the power in that. In the Old Testament, God sees the needs of the Israelites. He sees the needs why they're in captivity, remember? They're in captivity, and he says, I see your need. I see your brokenness. I see your depravity. I'm going to be with you. I promise you that I will send somebody to be with you. And then he sent Jesus, and Jesus was with us, and then he resurrected from the dead, and he ascended into heaven. Now, do we, now who do we have who is with us? The Holy Spirit. 
See, God never leaves us alone. When God makes us a promise like that, it's forever. It, it doesn't go away. Even though Jesus is in heaven, he is still with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is a part of the Trinity. If you don't know what the Trinity is, it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three in one, with unique personalities, with a structure, with an order, but all the same in one. There's no way to explain that. I can't take an egg and be like, okay, this is what the Trinity is like. It doesn't make any sense. It's an egg. Right? But the Trinity is this fullness of God, that he can be all things. It's like Corey said, he is 100% of this. He is 100% three people. It doesn't even make any sense. It's not like a crazy person. He is 100% of three people. That's called the character of God. You guys understand, we all have character. God has a character. God is a set of things. How do we find out what God is? Well, the scriptures tell us. Corey read a piece of God's scripture this morning that says, I am holy. I am holy. That means that God's character is holiness. Where our character can be deceitful, God's character is. And so when God made the promise that he would send his son to be born of a virgin to save the world from sin, he was serious. But he didn't do it how we'd imagine. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at some beauty. Oh, it's going to be so beautiful. It's the holiday season with Santa Claus, right? Okay, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar, or as I like to say, Caesar. It's not Caesar. I was just joking. Nobody got it, though, did they? Nobody thought that was funny? That's okay. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that was taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from his town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house of the line of David. And so what's happening here is Caesar Augustus, who was an authoritarian leader, he had taken the Roman Empire and made it great once again, but he was a very hard man. And so Caesar Augustus sees all that he's done, and he says, how can we make more money? And so he issues a tax. See, the census was part of this tax. It was bigger than just counting the amount of people in the world. Rome had dominated. Caesar was, had a huge kingdom, and he says, I want more money. And so he issues a census for a global tax. And so this global tax will make everybody who lives in his kingdom now pay another tax on top of the other taxes. It's basically called a living tax. They're going to pay a tax just because they're alive. And they live in Rome. Or in a province of Rome. And so God allows Caesar to take a global tax. Now it's interesting, right? Because, see, uh, Joseph and Mary were in Galilee. Remember in Luke chapter 1? When the angel comes to Mary, it says, Mary was in Nazareth, a church, I mean, a city in Galilee. So God chooses somebody from Galilee. That's very interesting. But the Savior was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So why did God choose a woman from Galilee? And if you guys remember in the New Testament, Taylor just said it, nothing good can come from Galilee, right? Nothing good can come from Nazareth. And so it's interesting, why did God choose a woman from Galilee? 
if the Savior was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Well, last week we talked a little bit about it. Mary was obedient. That's the reason that God chose her to do this task. She said, okay, God, whatever you say. And she did all the things that God had called her to do. And now God allows Caesar to do this global tax so that he can get this woman from Galilee to Bethlehem. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't that just blow your mind? See, God works in ways that you would never imagine. See, think about all the religious leaders back then. They were like, well, this woman said that she's going to have the Savior of the world, Emmanuel, God is with us. But we know that the Old Testament, that the Scripture says that the Savior will be born in Bethlehem. She's from Galilee. How's that going to happen? Well, God works in ways that doesn't bring the religious leaders glory, but brings himself glory. See, God is not an efficient God. Does that make sense? God is not efficient. God does not do the thing that we think makes the most sense. Jesus didn't do the thing that we thought made the most sense. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, he goes a completely different route so that he throws everybody off, goes a completely different route just so he can speak to this one woman. It wasn't about efficiency with God. It wasn't about how many ways he can make us look right. It was about how much glory can he bring to himself through the ways that he works. See, we as Christians, as followers of Christ, as the church, we have to understand that a lot of the times, God is not going to do anything that makes sense to us. He just wants our obedience so that he can make sense of it. See, you may think, well, God is going to do this. This is exactly what I want him to do. This is what I've been praying for. Well, chances are he's probably not going to do it in the way that you thought he was going to do it. You're going to do it in a way that he's going to do in a way that brings himself glory and makes you look like a fool. How good is that? God wants to make us look like fools. Why? Because it brings him glory. See, it shows that our wisdom is not the wisdom of God. When we make a plan and we say we're going to do this and this is how we're going to do it and nothing's going to stop us from doing it and you write it down and you mark it down and you laminate it and you said this is the plan, nothing will deviate from the plan. Maybe some of you have gone on a road trip and you said this is the route I'm taking no matter what. And maybe this is before GPS because now route change all the time. But Sarah's dad doesn't use GPS. He gets a map out. And he charts a course the way that he's going to go somewhere and he doesn't deviate from his course. Because that's the way he's going to go. Maybe some of you are like that. You're so rigid on how you're going to do it. You're like, okay, we're going on a trip for Christmas. We're going to stop at this place for lunch because we go to this place every single year. We're then going to go here because we go to this place every year. We go to our grandparents every single year. This is where we sleep. This is how we do it. And you're like, this is the plan. See, if God was going to take control of your road trip, if you want to do something on your road trip, you know what he would do? He'd give you two flat tires so that you have to be in one spot where two people will come where you can love them. And then he'll take you on a completely different route that takes twice as long because God wants to take you through a path where there's more people that you can love. Now, understand, I'm not saying God's going to give you flat tires. But I am saying he could do it because it would bring himself glory. Because if you got flat tires, there's a reason you got a flat tire. You guys understand that? See, a lot of times we miss out on what God is doing because we're so angry about the situation. Yeah. Think about when you're on the road and someone's driving slow in front of you and you can't pass them. You get so caught up in the anger that you forget about the potential that maybe God is trying to teach you some patience. Or we get a flat tire or a car doesn't start. We get so flustered and so overcome with anxiety that we forget, hey, maybe God wants us to do something. Maybe he needs us to be in this parking garage 10 minutes longer. What if God wants to do something with every single moment, but every single moment we let pass away because we get so consumed by what we want instead of what he wants? See, God works in a way where he takes a woman from Galilee to Bethlehem and he uses a global tax to do it. Who would have thought that a global tax would be a good thing? 
right? Caesar Augustus wasn't doing this to glorify God. Caesar Augustus was doing this so that he could get more money, but what did God do with it? He took it and used it for something that glorifies him. What does Genesis 50 19 say, what you have intended for evil, God has used for good for the saving of many lives. What does Romans 8, 28 say? What God will work together all things for good of those who love him. And so sometimes we have to understand that God is doing things that don't look good so that he can bring himself glory. And in those things, they're always good. See, sometimes we just have to be patient, rely on the fruits of the spirit. See, as a church, we've forgotten that there's things called spiritual disciplines that God teaches us, that he corrects in us. He gives us a desire to remember who he is. He teaches us things that allow us to be more productive for the kingdom of God and bring him more glory. But so often, we become consumed with just a few things that we forget about the expansive things, and then we get so consumed with this is how it's supposed to look, when in reality, it's probably not supposed to look like that. But we've charted a course, and that's how we want it to look, so that's how it's going to look, and scripture won't change it. See, God wants to do something great with every moment of your entire life. God took a woman from Galilee who was engaged to a man from the line of David. As the Old Testament says, the Messiah will come from the line of David. A never-ending throne will be given, right? A never-ending throne will be given. Takes them to Bethlehem for just a period of time because it's so interesting because very soon after this, we'll see in a couple weeks, King Herod kills all those sons and they have to escape to Egypt takes them there for just a very short amount of time just a very short amount of time see sometimes you only have a minute sometimes you only have an hour sometimes you only have a season and God wants to do something so great in that season but we let what we think what we feel influence the decision, influence the situation so much that we don't see the productiveness of the situation. And we just hate it and we, we complain. And then we don't get the peace that we were supposed to be given in the situation. And then that is stored in one of those, uh, our memory as this is where just it was awful. It was the worst day of my life. Instead of saying this is the day that most glorified God because in my suffering I persevered and I showed everybody the glory of God. I was the fruit of the Spirit in that moment. And so he takes Caesar Augustus, uses his tax for something great, takes them to Bethlehem. He went to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, I always think this is hilarious. He went with Mary, who was expecting a child, who was pledged to be married to him. God put that in there for a reason, because it's hilarious. It shows that she's a virgin and that she's going to have a baby because she wasn't married yet. He does this wording very specifically to remind us, hey, Mary's a virgin. This is what's so cool about this. Don't forget. While they were there, they came, the, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to a firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And so oftentimes we, we think that Mary and Joseph were going to a hotel. There was an innkeeper. He said there's no room at the inn. That's not true. That's not from Scripture. That's something that we've put in there uh, to make the story make a little bit more sense. The reality is, is back then the word that is used for what we would call a hotel is not even in this Scripture. We find that in Luke chapter 10 with the, the Good Samaritan story where he actually takes him to a hotel. The Greek word is used there, but the Greek word for hotel is not used here. See, Mary and Joseph went to a house, and the, there was no guest room available at that house. That means that the house was filled with family. And so what happened was they were either directed to the barn or they were directed to the in-home barn. 
Now, you guys might be thinking, in home barn. What is that? Uh, so basically, Israelite houses were set up really interestingly. Uh, Roman houses were set up really interesting this time. Basically, people lived on kind of like a second floor. And on the bottom floor, a lot of your animals lived there. And so just think about that. There's not like separated rooms. And so you're living in a house on the top, and I think smell rises, right? You're living on the top floor with the animals on the bottom floor. So every time those animals are using the restroom, think about the way your house smells. Right? A lot of times in the Old Testament, we would see that people would go into houses and animals would run out. And so Mary and Joseph were either in an actual barn that was detached from the house, or they were on the bottom level of a house. And there were people on the top level, and there was a donkey right here, probably some sheep, and they're sleeping there because there was no guest room available for them. Now, why would God do that? Remember, God has a purpose for everything. Why would he allow Jesus not to just be born in a guest room? <laughs> why, why were they specifically in a barn? Well, there's a couple interesting things that occur right here. Number one, there's a manger. So a lot of the times animals would eat from mangers. Uh, mangers were not normal things for babies to sleep in back then. It just wasn't. It's a, it's a feeding trough is essentially what it was. But I love the fact that, she, that Jesus was born in a manger in a barn. Number one, it's a very lowly birth. So there, you probably couldn't find a lot of people who were placed in mangers when they were born back then, even back then. Couldn't find a lot of people who were born in a barn. And so Jesus comes into the world as last. Remember what Jesus says in the gospel. The first will become last and the last will become first. Jesus was born in the lowliest way possible because he would take the position of number one. That's what that scripture means. He was born last and became first. See what I'm saying? The humble. He took a humble birth and was born and became savior. Number two, the feeding trough is interesting because people, uh, animals would eat from these feeding troughs, specifically uh, lambs, specifically sheep, right? They would eat from these feeding troughs. And the beautiful picture is here is Jesus is born inside of a feeding trough. And the very thing that people will consume to gain eternal life is born in a feeding trough. How cool is that? Y'all don't seem very excited. I'm super excited. Like, Jesus would be consumed, right? He would be consumed. A Hebrew says that he is a consuming fire and consumes all things. But before that, he would be consumed. So the sheep, uh, the goats, the lambs, everything come to this feeding trough to eat. And inside of it is a baby who will die on the cross for all sins for all of his sheep. Remember the 99? Remember the one who goes wandering, right? He goes after them. The 99 sheep, he refers to us as sheep. He is feeding us through his birth and through his death on the cross. God is allows Jesus to be born in a manger to symbolize what will come on the cross. We forget how the beauty of Scripture. We read this story and we just read through it so quickly. Man, I'm too excited. Okay, expecting a child and she gave birth. There was no room at the guest. Okay. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby. Oh man, shepherds. There's shepherds in the field nearby. That means there's a lot of sheep. There's shepherds. That means there's got to be sheep everywhere. So there's shepherds here. They have all these sheep. Now they're nearby where Jesus is born. And they were tending their flock at night. Remember, shepherds got to tend their flock at night because of wolves. You got to tend your flock at night because of the wolves. See, everything is looking to consume the sheep. Remember what it says in the story of Cain and Abel, Satan is at your door crouching ready to prowl. Remember what Jesus says about Satan, he is a roaring lion waiting to devour you. 
The shepherds are with their sheep at night, protecting them, loving them, embracing them. And it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. (laughs) An angel of the Lord comes, and again, everybody is terrified. Why are they terrified? Because angels are scary. They are warriors. They are messengers. They are not just these people in white robes with wings and crowns on. They have swords. They have fire. The glory of the Lord is shining around them. It's blinding. And they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid. Every time you see an angel, it says, hey, don't be afraid of me. I'm going to show you my... They need to come saying, like, don't be afraid. And then pop up, right? But they're scared. I bring you good news. Okay, good news, the gospel. That's what the original translation is. I bring you the gospel. (laughs) I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah the Lord. He is the chosen one, Messiah the chosen one. They would have known what Chosen One was because they were waiting for this redemption from the Roman Empire. They were waiting for this redemption from sin that God promised them way back in Genesis 1, which we looked at a few weeks ago. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger. Now the shepherds, they're all hanging out. And they're like, what do you mean I'm going to find a baby in a manger? This was weird to them. This, this was not a normal thing. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths in a manger. And they don't have time to think because suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. So when the angel showed up, when Gabriel showed up to Mary, it was one angel. Telling one woman a great purpose. When Jesus is born, and they're talking about the glory of God, it says that there is a heavenly host. It means that there is thousands of angels proclaiming the glory of the born Savior of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem. It means that to proclaim the glory of the Son being born, it couldn't just be one angel. It's got to be every angel. It's got to be the heavenly host. It has to be the proclamation that the Son has come because one angel will not do. Right? One angel cannot bring the glory of God. Look at Revelation chapter 7 starting in verse 9. After I looked and there before me was a great multitude. That no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Y'all feel that? Born in a manger compared to a lamb. He is the perfect lamb, right? The perfect, the spotless lamb that could wipe away all sin. Back to the manger, there is the lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches. Oh my gosh. They were holding palm branches. You guys remember in the gospel when Jesus comes into the city with his immaculate way that he's going to go to the cross. They bring palm branches. Now in Revelation in heaven, they are holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. You know what they cry out? Salvation belongs 
to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Back to the Trinity, God and the Lamb. It belongs to Him. Isn't that amazing? We think, well, God has saved us. It doesn't belong to you. The only reason it's been given to you is by the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, through His birth of a virgin, boy on the earth, and then a death on the cross. That's the only reason you have salvation. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Him who freely gives. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. We're not going to get into what the living creatures are, because Revelation is confusing. And you've got to read the first six chapters to even begin to understand this. But the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory, and wisdom and thanks and honor, and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. These are the people of God. It said they fell on their faces. Think about that for a moment. They fell on their faces. We, we, you want to know what heaven's like? This is heaven. That's what Revelation is. Revelation is a picture of John going and seeing the end of the world. It's part of what we think about sometimes, like the apocalypse. But Revelation is the picture that we get to glimpse into a heaven and what eternity looks like with God. And so every tribe, every tongue, every nation right here, okay, culture is important. That's what this verse is telling us right here. Every culture, what you carry, all that, you're going to bring it to heaven. You're going to be the uniqueness of the creation of God. You're going to fall on your face. You're going to praise him because the one whose salvation belongs to has given you an inheritance so that you can accept it, so that you can be with him forever, praising the perfect lamb. Y'all feel that. Feel the fire. You've been given that so that we can be with God in eternity. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Because one angel could not suffice delivering the news that the one who will set you free is here. One angel can't suffice standing around the throne. One group of people cannot suffice standing around the throne. It's got to be everybody. It's got to be every tongue, every tribe, every every nation, every language. Why did God tell us that? Well, because it's incredibly important. People talk about, well, we, we are different than these people, and these people are not as good as us, and those people are not as good as us, and people are uneducated or not as intelligent as me, so they don't deserve to sit at the same tables as me. Well, that's not what the Bible says. If you're rich and someone else is poor, you're no better than them. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. If we are demoralizing people because they're different than us, and all we're doing is saying, God, you're not good enough. If you can't stand next to him and praise God here with him, you're not going to be in heaven praising God with him. God wants unity and community and transformation, bringing you together as one. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. So a whole multitude has got to come to announce this. It says peace. What is peace? What is peace? See, peace is something that is stronger than happiness. Peace is something that is bigger than situation and circumstance. A lot of the times we think when our situation is good that we have peace. See, when your situation is good, you don't have peace. When your situation is good, you have a good situation that makes you not worried. 
You don't got peace because then what can happen? Well, your situation can begin to fall apart, and then what are you? You're a wreck. Some of you all are wrecking here right now today. Some of you were a wreck this week. I put together a bunk bed this week and then a swing set. You want to kill me? Then make me do that. Many of you probably know, but I can't read instructions. <laughs> and you're like, well, yes, you can't. No, I can't. Like, I have a weird brain that doesn't work in linear form, and so some of you may, if you know what that means, it means that I can't work in processes. So if you tell me you have to do this, this, and that, I'm going to look at you and be like, Nick, come here. <laughs> Nick's laughing because that's what happens. We had an office one time, and there was a bookshelf. Nick didn't even work for us. I called him and said, Nick, I can't do this. I literally can't do it. It's, Sarah wasn't there, so it was stressing me out way too much because Sarah reads the instructions for me. I put together some Legos yesterday with Titus. That was the most stressful 45 minutes of my entire life. You know what? I got done one box with two dinosaur eggs in it. I can't understand processes. God has uniquely gifted me with that, I guess. I'm a nonlinear thinker, so I think in nonlinear ways, so in this. And that makes perfect sense to me. Math is perfectly easy to me when there's one step. When you get into parentheses and having to do certain things before you do certain things, it makes no sense to me. My math teacher did not agree with me. And that's why I never passed algebra. Or geometry. Or pre-algebra. <laughs> no, you guys are laughing, but I went to the ninth grade, and I was in algebra. Failed it so bad, they put me in pre-algebra in the tenth grade. Failed that so bad, that they put me back in algebra because I had to get it done. And then I didn't even take them geometry until I was a senior. And the teacher, this is, this is a real story. She came to me, and she was like, here's the deal. I'm going to get you graduated. That's what she said to me. She's like, don't worry about it. And so I was like, okay. She's no longer a teacher. Uh, she went on sabbatical, <laughs> never came back. Uh, but you guys think I'm joking, but I was a drug dealer, and I was really bad at math. So, like, I could do plus and stuff like that. I don't know. It, it's weird, but I could, like, sell drugs really easily. So, like, eighth, tenth, stuff like that. That made sense to me, but it only makes sense to me in drug form. So, it was really weird. So, anyways, I can't think of processes. Doesn't make any sense to me. That's why we hired Nick. Long story short, now we're back here. So you want to kill me, I had to put these things together. You know how stressed? I had no peace. It, ask Sarah, I get so stressed out. I'm like, the world is like, it, it's over. Like I start sweating, I start stressing out, I get in a bad mood, she does the wrong thing. I'm like, what the heck is wrong with this? I'm throwing it away. I literally almost took the swing set back and went and bought new presents. Because, I, well, yeah, we had Christmas on Saturday with our kids because we're going to Ohio. And so we had this swing set. It was 7 o'clock at night. Taylor and Destiny came to help because Taylor knows. Every year at Christmas, he's helping me put this crap together. And so if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. And so we're putting it together. And I told Taylor, I was like, man, I'm just, gonna, I'm just taking this back. I'm going to keep it for the summertime. They can have it in the summertime. Right now I'm going to Walmart. I'm going to buy brand new presents. I didn't care. I was like, this is too stressful. I had no peace at that moment. It's something that I don't understand, something that doesn't make any sense to me. See, sometimes in our lives, there's stuff that happens to you. It doesn't make any sense to you. You're like, what is going on? You can't comprehend it. You can't understand it. See, peace is knowing that no matter you don't understand, there's someone who does. 
and that that man, that God, that Jesus is on your side and he's paving the path for you so that you can see a great multitude of angels one day, so that you can fall on your face and praise him one day, so that you can bring as many people with you because he's chasing the one, he sent you to chase the one, and we're going to get them all, right? Just like Pokemon, got to get them all, right? And so he's like, we're going to get them all, we're going to get them all, and peace is knowing that no matter what happens, even though you don't understand it, God is working in it, and the one who does understand it is on your side. See, the reason that we don't feel peace is because we don't really believe that he's on our side. Y'all feel me? Think about that for a moment. You don't really believe that God is on your side, and that's why you can't have peace in the dark situation. That's why when you're in a dark room and everything looks like it's falling apart and all you hear is screaming, all you feel like is, I can't make it, and in your head you're consumed with all the problems, all the situations that are going to happen, all the bad things that are going to happen, that you can't have peace, and so you're a wreck, and so you revert back into yourself, and you're like, I'm just not going to do anything. Because there's no winning this situation. See, that's not peace. Peace is knowing that no matter what happens, God is working it out. That whatever falls in your face, God is using it for a purpose. That whatever comes and smacks you, that whatever burden is on you, that whatever uh, person God makes sick or whatever death he brings, whatever situation he brings with your car, with your house, he is working in it for a purpose. And it's incredibly hard to understand why, but peace is knowing that he's doing it. And that he is not efficient. He's not in the business of efficiency. He's not meeting no quota. He is in the business of the glory of himself. To bring all glory to himself. To make himself center stage. To show everybody in this world. At the end, when he comes back, when he returns, when you're sitting on the th- before the throne with him, and you see that he worked everything together, every bad situation, every hurt situation, you're going to see all the ways that he worked in all these people's lives, all the ways that you transform people's lives through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you to make a big difference in a small world so that he could bring glory to himself so that people would not be eternally separated from him. Isn't that beautiful that peace is knowing? So peace to those on whom his favor rests. Who's, who's the ones that God's favor rests upon? You. Me. The world. God's favor rests upon you. God's favor rests upon you. When you have the peace of God living inside of you, his favor rests upon you. The favor of God is for all people. It's not just people who are pre-selected. It's not just people who are randomly selected. It are people of all that God created, every tribe, every tongue, every language, every mental disability, every uh, situation that causes someone to not be as coherent, uh, every situation, God's people, those are his people, and he wants his favor, his peace to rest upon them. But there has to be people who proclaim the glory of God to them. You're the ones that God has chosen to be the deliverers of his peace. It says that a heavenly host came and it said these things. Angels aren't here right now. Who's going to proclaim the glory of God? You, me, us, proclaiming the glory of God. And it can't just be one of us, because if it's just one of us, then are we giving God the glory that he deserves? No, it took a whole heavenly host just to announce his birth. Think about that for a moment. This is his birth. The birth is important, but it's not that important. Like the birth is nothing compared to what is to come. 
The birth is nothing compared to his death on the cross. So think about how many it takes to proclaim his death on the cross. If it took a multitude to proclaim his birth, it's got to take 10, 15, 20 multitudes of his followers to proclaim his death on the cross to a lost and dying world who has no peace. If you got the peace, we got to be the givers of the peace. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that happened which the Lord has told us about. Now, the shepherds aren't going to be like, oh, that was weird. <sighs> I wonder where Bruce is, right? But that's not going to happen. They're not going to be like, let's go get some food. No, they're like, there was just a multitude of angels here. We can't just go back to everyday life. We got to go see what God just told us about. Think about that for a moment. If God has changed your life, there's no going back to just who you used to be. There's no just living life and surviving life. If God has come before you and shown you his glory, and that may be through somebody coming and proclaiming the gospel, that may be at a church, whatever the case may be, but if God has come before you and made himself known to you, there's no going back to what it used to be like. There has to be a complete and total transformation in who you are. Now, you're not just going to change overnight, but it's a willingness to be changed and transformed by the word of God because when you experience something life-transforming, there's no going back. That's how it is in all of Scripture. There's no story in Scripture where God confronted them and they gave their lives to Him and then they went to work on Monday. No. Paul, he got confronted by Christ and Christ made him blind made him wander blindly into a town and have a dude named Ananias remove his scales from his eyes. The Ethiopian eunuch randomly had a dude named Philip come to him. He was just hanging out in his carriage. And he was like, hey, Philip, what uh, Ethiopian eunuch, what are you reading? Let me tell you about gospel. God confronted the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch got baptized right away. Went and lived his life for the glory of God. There's, there's no going back to who you used to be. Now, if you've been confronted with God, you still got to go to work on Monday. It's not like you just, yeah, you just quit your job. You, God wants you to be, uh, give a life of poverty. No, that's not what it is. But when you get confronted by God and you got to go to work on Monday, you go to work on Monday different. You go to work on Monday like the shepherds are leaving here. We got to go tell people about what just happened with this multitude of angels and the glory of God. So they hurried off and found Mary. See, they didn't just walk. They were like, okay, let's get. They hurried off and found Mary. And Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. This brings up the manger again. That's so interesting, right? Why does it keep bringing up this manger? Well, because Jesus is going to feed the multitudes. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what has been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured all these things in her heart and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Just as they had been told. So God's word comes through again. 
just as was written in the Old Testament, just as the angels proclaimed, everything came to fruition the way that they said, just as the word of God comes to fruition every single day in your lives, in the way that he works, in what he promises and what he doesn't promise, in every way the word of God comes through again. And these shepherds who had been confronted with the power of God, who had then seen the baby who was born to die. Think about that for a moment. Jesus was a fattened calf waiting to be murdered on a cross. His whole life was preparation for that one moment. 33 years old, whatever the case may be. It was preparation for that one moment. Side note, Jesus was born sometimes between 6 and 9 B.C., just so you know. And people are like, well, how do you know that? Well, there was, if, if you see, this is a real place, real history. It says that Caesar Augustus issued a census that actually happened in history. Read any history book, that's what happened. Quinarius was a real governor, and his first census was between 6 and 9 B.C. See, these censuses were so big that they took about three years to complete. And so Quinarius really issued this census. Think about that. Think you're just, this is real history. This really happened. Why would God throw so much detail in there? Caesar Augustus issued a census when Quinarius was governor. <laughs> He's saying, hey, I want you to know this is real events. This is not just some made-up story. And so the shepherds are confronted by God. The word of God comes through, and it says that they go and they tell everybody. They have been confronted with the majesty of God. A fattened calf, one who was born to die. They had saw the culmination of all that they had been waiting for. Thousands of years of waiting is coming to culmination right here when they seen this baby born in a manger who God promised in Genesis chapter 1, who if they had been waiting for, they finally see the hope, the glory, the love, all of those things. They finally see it, and there's nothing that can Stop them from proclaiming the news of Jesus Christ. It's time. It's time. He's here. The one we've been waiting for is here. The one that our heart has desired is here. The one that God promised us when Adam and Eve sinned, he's here. He's born. Just the same exact way God said he would be born. His glory came and shown us. There wasn't one angel. There was a multitude of angels. And you know what the world probably said to these shepherds? You guys are crazy. You're a bunch of young kids who are shepherds. You're dirty, you're stinky, you sleep with sheep. See, it sounds like such a great story, right? The shepherds. The shepherds. But back then, people would have looked at shepherds and been like, nah, they're not worthy. They're not good enough. I don't believe them. They're not educated enough. They, they didn't really see what they thought they saw. See, God chooses the lowly to shame the wise. The scripture says that. God changes the lowly to shame the wise. When you read scripture, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the book of Judges, has anybody ever in here ever read the book of Judges? Will you raise your hand if you have? Okay. So the book of Judges is amazing. Here's why. Every single judge that God chooses is completely and totally screwed up. The first one he chooses is named Gideon. And Gideon is the most scared dude in the entire world. The second one that he chooses has left hand, okay? And back then, left hand was a disability. If you were left-handed, they would be like, man, this person can do nothing. Literally, that's the reality. And we got three lefties in here right now, right? And so, but right-handed people, and so, but God uses his leftiness 
to do something great. He kills a king because the security guard didn't check his left hand because they didn't think a lot of people were left-handed and they thought it was a disability so they couldn't do anything. So he sneaks the knife in his left hand and kills the king with it from his left hand. Cool, right? Yeah, read the book of Judges. Really interesting. Then the next guy that he chooses is, well, the next woman that he chooses, her name is Deborah. And Deborah is so vicious. Like, she'd be killing everybody is against God, right? And she has a partner. I can't remember his name, but he's a guy, and he's a big guy. And one time, God tells her partner to go into the city and take it. And he goes to Deborah, and he's like, Deborah, I can't do this alone. And she's like, you're asking me? Didn't God tell you to do it? And he's like, yeah, but I need you to go with me, right? Think about that. Deborah, come with me. Help me murder everybody, right? Because I can't do it alone. See, God chooses a woman who is just so strong and so passionate about God to go in and completely eradicate all those who are being eternally separated from God and leading children astray. He uses her to transform generations. See, remember, they didn't believe that women could be leaders back then. (laughs) They didn't believe that. But Deborah leads the entire nation of Israel. You may not have known that. Deborah leads the entire nation of Israel into victory. Want to know what the Bible says, why all the, where all the men were? Out chasing tail and idols. That's literally the translation that the Bible uses. That's where they were. It blows my mind. And so she uses Deborah, and then he uses a dude named Samson. You know what Samson was? <sighs> he was a bad guy. Killed lions, ate honey from them. Killed a bunch of people with a jawbone, like a thousand people with a hundred thousand people with a jawbone. Was very promiscuous, even though he was a Nazarite. And so it's just this whole story. Drank when he wasn't supposed to, slept with too many women. The women who got him and actually killed was the one who he wasn't even supposed to be with. She was a prostitute. And so God chooses him and uses him. <laughs> See, God wants to use the lowly. God wants to use the lowly. He wants to go to the ones will be transformed. He wants to go to the ones who have been so beat down, who have been so mocked, who have been so ridiculed. And he wants to embrace them and love them. And he wants to show his glory. Because if he would have went to the kings and the kings would have proclaimed it, everybody would have had to believe them. Because they're kings. Everybody had to go do this census. Because Caesar Augustus declared it. If he would have went to them, it wouldn't have meant anything. But he went to the shepherds to shame the wise. To show them that the glory of God is greater than what we can fathom. Today right here on December 19th, a week until Christmas, you've been presented with the story of God. You've been presented with the gospel of Jesus that he came and died on a cross for you. But first, that he was born, and that he lived a life empowered by God, that he lived a sinless life, that he was a calf being fattened for death to die for you, that everything God said come to fruition through the Bible, through Scripture, the Scripture never let us down, that he would be born of a virgin, and he was, that his glory and his peace rests upon you. Now, you have a decision. You have one of two ways you can go right here. You can go and you can proclaim the good news and the glory of Jesus Christ. You can love people and, like Addie said, give them blankets. See, you can give them the covering. You have the power to give people the covering. 
Now, when I say covering, I want you to clearly understand me. You have the power to give people the covering of Jesus Christ through his blood on the cross. You do. All 17 of you here. I don't know where everybody else is, but all 17 of you here. I'm just kidding. There's more of you than that. You have the power to give people the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ. You do. That's how much God loves you. That's how much, how much his favor rests upon you. Think about that. You're like, and in your mind, you're still thinking, no, I'm not good enough. If a shepherd was good enough, you're good enough. Because God made you good enough. God wants to use you because you're going to bring the most glory to him. Like I said, we got the two decisions. We can go and do that, or we can continue to sit on our hands. We can continue to proclaim that we're followers of Christ and do nothing with the gift that we've been given. Think about that. I want that to hit your heart. <laughs> it, it convicts me. I've been given a great gift. If I'm not doing something with it, did I really accept the gift? If I've been confronted with the glory of God and multitudes of angels and the proclamation that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for me and I'm still living as the sinners live, if I'm still living as the world lives, have I really been influenced by the greatest gift that had ever been given? Of course I'll sin. Of course I'll make mistakes. But is my heart to say, I don't care about what's in the past. I want to go to the future with God and everybody's coming with me. Because the glory of God has been shown and the favor rests upon me. The favor rests upon you. What are we going to do with it? Family, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to continue to sit on our hands and we're going to be like the shepherds and say, God has told me the secret. I can't do nothing except for proclaim it. On Monday, I got to proclaim it at work. On Tuesday, I got to proclaim it at the gym. On Wednesday, I got to proclaim it at my grandparents' house. I got to proclaim the gospel of God because it's living inside of me. And if I've been confronted with the greatest gift and I don't proclaim it, did I really accept it? Did I really accept it if it didn't do something inside of me? Is it important to me? Is Christ important to me? Is the God who fulfills prophecy important to me? Is the God who promised to never leave me alone, to never forsake me, is he important to me? Does his favor rest upon me? Is his peace inside of me? You guys will stand. Thank you for listening this week. To learn more about ID Clifton, including our gathering times, small groups, and events coming up, visit us at idclifton.com. Again, thank you for listening to the ID Clifton podcast. And remember, love God and love others. Thank you.